artist who wants everybody to love me and everyone to buy me stuff. Part of me suspects I'm a loser. Part of me thinks I'm God Almighty. Brian put us in suits and all that, and we made it very, very big, but we sold out. In the early days, lyrics didn't really count, you know. She loves you, he loves her, they love each other. One has to completely humiliate oneself to be what the Beatles were. When you grow up, you calm down a little. Yoko played me tapes I understood. That's what people don't understand. She's the teacher and I'm the pupil. We got fed up of being sidemen for Paul. It seems my partings are always not as nice as I'd like them to be. We all say a lot of things that we don't know what we're talking about. I'm probably doing it now. Nobody controls me. The only one that can control me is me and that's just barely possible. <laughs> Would you take it all back? Welcome this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. This week, we're going to be talking about a film which just came out on YouTube a couple weeks back. Yeah, this is very interesting, the way it was set up. First of all, it's called Rubber Soul. The director is a fellow named John Lefkowitz. He's an editor, although he wants to do more within the film and TV industry. He's probably best known for editing the Iron Man commercials. (laughs) you look at what he's done that you might have seen well there's all these iron man promos in there oh oh okay but (laughs) that's actually kind of relevant the thing about this film is it's the editing that makes this film right and didn't dick lester start off doing commercials i mean come on i think he did yes who needs you what I need is a Don Seller cigar, which by a strange coincidence, I happen to have right here. Of course, if I had to choose between a woman and a Don Seller, I would choose the woman. But it would have to be a woman who gave me Don Sellers. This Havana aroma drives them crazy. I'm giving them away for Christmas. No real news this week, but you should be aware if you have ordered your copy of the McCartney Photographs book from Barnes & Noble, they are indeed shipping it early. 
Mine is through Amazon, so I won't get it until the release date. But people are saying that they've gotten notices, and a couple people have actually had theirs come in. They're not in stores, but if you ordered from Barnes & Noble, they are shipping. Wow. Street date means nothing to these people. Well, you know, as history would have it, this is also the early date that Sgt. Pepper was released in the U.K. ahead of its official release date. Although, given that this was supposed to be a thing for Paul's birthday, well, no longer. It's the bright (laughs) month, I guess. (laughs) Right. They just wanted to have lots of cash to hand him for his birthday. (laughs) Here you go. Like, you need another check, take it. (laughs) As mentioned, the grand poobah of this film is a a fellow named John Lefkowitz. He has hired an actor to portray John Lennon, an actress to portray Yoko Ono, two others to portray Jan Winter and David Sheff. Right. The thing about this film, it had a budget of less than $5,000, apparently. And this was before you could just take out your iPhone and make a movie on it. (laughs) It's a very simple premise. Doesn't require set work. They're basically six actors in the whole thing, or five, I guess. So we haven't revealed what the plot of this film is because, well, it doesn't really have a plot. <laughs> it has a premise and not a plot. It is surprisingly well done. Right. You know, if we're going <laughs> to wrap it all up right now, I really enjoyed it the way he presented this and what he's done is he's taken the two really major interviews that, that Lennon did in his life, the 1970 interview with John Wenner and the 1980 interview with David Sheff and intercut them so that you get perspectives on kind of the same subjects from 10 years apart. How did John think? And sometimes he agrees with himself, and sometimes he says, no, I was just bullshitting them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, we've all been there. That is why you're kind of watching this film. That and just to see how he represented Lennon. The actor did a lot of homework. I will give him that. His name is Joseph Bearer. And there's also a little short on YouTube comparing the actual John Lennon's words with the actor repeating them. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. I'd say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of. (laughs) Not only did he memorize the words, he memorized the pauses, he memorized all of John's ums and ahs. (laughs) It's the Monty Python thing about not only do you have to memorize the words, but you have to get them in the right order. Pretty amazing. As mentioned in last week's show where we kind of talked about the real circumstances of these interviews – I will immerse myself in the Playboy interview for many years, and he gets it mostly right. There's a couple of things I will quibble with, but only a couple. We'll quibble away. Particularly in the 1970 interview, the cadence falls off a little bit. He does a little bit better playing the, the more laid back John, I think. You don't think he got the angst right? Exactly. There were a couple of things 
maybe it was his expressions almost kind of changed the way you took the words. And even though he replicated the dialogue perfectly, it was interesting to see the way it was delivered. This would make a hell of a stage play, actually. <laughs> right. One man show. You got two sets and you do them side by side and, and then you just switch back and forth between them. You know, you move the spotlight right or left. <laughs> would you have to have two different linens then? Yeah, you would absolutely have to have two different linens. Two Yokos. But I mean, that's also kind of the issue with this film is I don't really believe Bearer as either 1970 or 1980, John. Expand on that. I'm not sure I, I follow. I guess what it is, is that he's saying the words that he's saying them in an actorly way. I don't really feel that it's coming from the heart most of the time. It, to a certain extent, doesn't really feel like a conversation. Okay. I kind of get what you're saying. The way it starts off was really kind of revealing to me in regards to the interview with John Winter. Oh, you got notes and all that? Yeah. Well, we have to get it right, don't we? Gives me the paper to doodle on. Or is it all notes? It's all notes. Oh, okay. How many would you like? Oh, when you get through the first one, I'll have it. Thank you. Okay. He talks about him having notes, and he comments about the fact that it was going to be recorded, and then he asks for a piece of paper so he can doodle brings the humanity of the event there, I thought. Here he is. He's going to spill his guts. <laughs> and he does. So the opening credits start with just some basic explanatory text about the two interviews and what you're about to see that are multicolored, I guess supposed to be slightly on the psychedelic side. And then under it, there's a little bit of backwards talking. Uh, all the things associated with John. It kind of reminds me of that scene from Two of Us where it's like, okay, and now we're going to do meditation, and now we're going to play this, and now we're going to play that. Just so you remember, this is actually about John Lennon. <laughs> right. Exactly. I did go and reverse it. Exactly because you don't want to die like people you can't stand. The people I like, I'm a very nervous person, really. I'm headed as this tape sounds. This is me projecting. Yeah. Well, there you go. I so, thought it was from Meat City or something. <laughs> well, no, we're not going to talk about pigs now. So <laughs> it starts off in a boardroom, or at least what will pass as a boardroom. I think Alan Klein's was probably a little bit nicer. Probably. It looked more like a, a large broom closet, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> John and Yoko are sitting on one side of the table. Yoko, as portrayed by Denise Lee, I will use this to get one of my biggest pet peeves about these Beatle films. 
They will just take any Asian woman to play Yoko, won't they? Oh, she doesn't have to look or sound anything like Yoko Ono. We'll just slap a wig on her. Do you want to start or should I start? You should start. Oh, I should. Oh, I thought she she sounded a lot like her. I will agree with you. What little she got, and most of what she got was in the 1980s side. In the 1970s side, she says about, what, 10 words? Right. So you're looking for someone who really is barely in the film. But knowing those two interviews, Yoko played a much bigger role in the Rolling Stone interview than they even hint at here. While she wasn't 50%, she was probably about 25, 30% of what was going on in that interview. Right. But then you have to question whether there's a corresponding interview in 1980 where you could, I mean, you know, the whole premise of this is here's the 1970 interview versus the 1980 interview with John various quotes. Will that do the same using Yoko 1970, 1980? I get it. It's trying to sell itself to the Beatles audience, to the John Lennon audience. And, you know, there's still a lot of people who will tune out when they see, oh, Yoko says anything. That's dumb. <laughs> so my other question, wasn't Jan Winter clean shaven for the uh, Rolling Stone interview? I don't know. I, I would assume that they would have researched that. I mean, to actually put a mustache on him. The photos I've seen before and after he's clean shaven, but it's certainly possible he might have had a mustache. I, I don't think I've seen a picture of Winter actually at the interview. Yeah, I, I don't recall. Chef is a reasonably good lookalike. They did do the, the hair and costuming on him okay. But as I say, I, I don't dig Yoko's wig in the Rolling Stones side. She does look like she's gotten a very recent bad haircut. Again, if you only have a little bit of money, maybe you spend it on your presentation a little bit more, especially since you're not having to write a script. <laughs> Maybe so. As you mentioned, you know, we start with Jan Winter takes out a yellow legal pad and John asks for a bit of paper to doodle on. Right. John did indeed doodle all through the four hours of that interview. Yeah. Well, I mean, he said up front that there's nothing added or taken away from the tape. So, well, no, he didn't. He didn't say there's nothing taken away. He said that it's all John Lennon's words and they haven't added anything to it. I think in some places they may have condensed some quotes, although maybe I'm mistaken. Because, I mean, they do kind of have to tell their story. Clearly they took some things away because it wasn't that long. As portrayed, I don't know how friendly John seems toward the winner character. Whereas in real life, they seem much more comfortable with each other. And that may go back to what I was saying about it seems a little actorly at times. Yeah. I kind of go to what was going down, which was, you know, Winter clearly knew this was something really big. It was really important to him, could have a huge impact with the magazine. And John was preparing to put it all out there. And so both of them were not normal at that point. Then we cut to the introduction on the 1980 side. I like that it starts with someone, was it John, doing ding, ding, ding on the teacup, sort of mimicking the wishing bells at the start of Double Fantasy. 
Right. So then we go into how they actually separate things. Between each different section or topic, they put up a subhead. Here's a couple of words telling you what we're going to talk about. Right. They also throw up some clips, which are Beatle clips. For the most part, there are some solo clips in there as well. And that was apparently part of the reason why this film never got any kind of real release until now is they never got permission to use those clips. That'll stop you. Especially when we're talking about the Beatles and the Lennon estate. Right. Got to watch out for Apple and Disney. (laughs) Well, and now that they're in bed together. (laughs) Right. That can be uh, particularly troublesome. (laughs) And well, since we're talking about the Rolling Stone interview, the spirit of Alan Klein is probably hanging around somewhere. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) So, okay, section one, simple and straight is what they call it. It is really just kind of juxtaposition of John talking about having just gone into the studio in 1970 to record what would become the Plastic Owner Band, as opposed to him being in the studio in 1980 talking about the double fantasy sessions. There's no hallucinations. There's no newspaper taxis. I was consciously writing poetry there, and that's self-conscious poetry. The poetry on this album is superior to anything I've done because it's not self-conscious in that way. I've tried, had least trouble writing the songs of all time, you know? There's no bullshit. Yeah, no bullshit. It's hard to misinterpret the songs you're doing now. Well, I'm not interested in creating illusion. Plastic Ono was simple and straight. Mm, yeah. That is what I'm trying to do. Now, I'm always trying to do that. So you get a kind of a perspective on how he viewed both projects. And here, it seems to be a complimentary thing rather than a contradictory thing. He's talking a lot about, this is how I record, this is how I do things. And uh, Lefkowitz can cut back and forth between the two and actually have John saying, things which match more or less right in real life you know since he was in the middle of the double fantasy sessions i don't know if he was thinking along those lines or not i mean obviously he talked to chef about the business of recording but he was mostly done at that point because that would have been september the starting over single came out in what uh november i believe that's correct So the single was getting ready to be released and they were just finishing up overdubs at that time, I guess. This interview was part of the promotional push that they were putting together. Clearly the album was going to come out. They're moving all that forward. And so this interview was done with the knowledge that it was promoting the new project. And that is then followed by John talking a little bit about his lyrics as poetry, which he has frequently discussed. Yes. What was similar is that he's going on about, it was just one thing in the Beatles up to a point, then help came and I was writing about myself and now I'm writing all about myself. I think he viewed it as a, an evolution, how he wrote, because in the early days, you know, the way he expressed himself by writing was different than what he was writing in pop songs. That all changed in an evolutionary way. The difference is while the double fantasy lyrics 
were certainly all about John and his life. He almost was thinking of it less as poetry and more as journalism, almost back to the sometime in New York City thing. You know, here's what's up with me. You know, in a way, that's the way all of his albums were. <laughs> here's here's where I am right now. Mind Games is a little bit different, but not really. Right. He still was talking about what was going on with him. You get something like I see him as saying, which is definitely John talking about the people in his life and what's going on in his life. It's about me, and I don't know about anything else, really. So we move on from there. Then The next section is I Was Awake. It's the, the yellow submarine smokestacks coming in. Again, if you're going to use that and cut that in there without permission, that's probably not real good. I'm surprised it got as far as actually showing in film festivals. Yeah. <laughs> the cross discussion there starts with a question from Winner about how did the Beatles affect your life? And we then cut between the two where John talks about how everything affects his life. Which makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> I came out the fucking sticks into, into, to take over the world, it seemed like to me. And I couldn't, I was enjoying it and I was in it and I was trapped in it too. My childhood was not all suffering. It was not all slum. I was always well-dressed, well-fed, and well-schooled, and brought up to be a nice, lower-middle-class English boy. It's not just the Beatles, and you can't isolate being in the Beatles from going to Quarry Bank or living with his Aunt Mimi. Right. It's part of his life. So how, how do you, like, chop it out? Well, here are my Beatle years. The interesting thing about that from the actual interview, and as represented here, is John talking about the students that lived with Mimi and the influence he was taking from being in a household with not just college-age students, but uh, graduate students at the time. Adults. Adults that were not treating him like a child, and they were also discussing things with him in a very real way. Which he views as it being very informative of his life. He grew up with adults. But then the counterpart from the Rolling Stone interview is John saying that, I didn't hear about anything other than Van Gogh was the most far out thing I'd ever heard of. And There's a lot more that could have been thrown in there that probably wasn't, or, or that certainly wasn't. Uh, I really liked the exchange where he starts talking about that it wasn't just Strawberry Fields, that as a kid, he would sit there and look in the mirror and his face would disappear. That could have fit very well in with this dialogue. Right. But it, it, uh, it does get the idea across. Almost all the stuff from the Rolling Stone interview was him trying to put forward that he was just a working class hero, which George and Ringo would have to laugh at. Well, and even Paul. Mendips was on the other side of the golf course. Right. John would kind of put it out what a tough upbringing he had. And no doubt that was Alan Klein feeding that to him. That kind of gets us to one of the points of this film is that was John lying or was John telling the truth or was he just telling a partial truth in both of these interviews? He was certainly promoting his agenda, whatever that happened to be at the time. While they were certainly interesting and he's certainly revealing a lot about himself, what he's revealing is what will promote the record. He's not going to be soft and he is very rarely soft in the Rolling Stone interview, although there are a couple places. Yeah, but on your 
definition of soft. There are times when in the, in the Rolling Stone interview that he comes off a little whiny. <laughs> That's how National Lampoon could do the Magical Misery Tour thing. The, <laughs> the song made from actual clips, much like this film. Right. It is nothing but John being whiny. Yeah. It's also funny as hell. Yeah. <laughs> right. The next section, rock and roll. This is dominated by the 1980 clip. They cut out the bits about John talking about Julian introducing him to a bunch of stuff. So on the 1970 side, you know, they have John talking about, oh, well, nothing's happening and I don't listen to anything or all I'm interested in is my own stuff. Right. Uh, just before I record, I like go buy a few albums just to see what people are doing, if they improved any or what. Has anything happened? Right. And nothing's really happened. You know, uh, There's a lot of great guitarists and musicians around, but nothing's happening. You know. It would be fascinating to say, so what is it you listen to when you decide you're going to... Do you go and you buy the newest Stones album? Because at that time, that's not necessarily what's on the cutting edge. Although the reminder of the fact that John was listening to the players is kind of interesting because the whole thing about the Beatles is we don't need to be virtuosos. Right. Did that come from Clapton? I can't think of even a single period through his career when he just said, I'm going to get the best players to play with me. You know, it seems to me that John was not really enamored of the whole supergroup idea. Yes, certainly. By the time he did Double Fantasy, I mean, he had people like Tony Levin and some good players. They were top-notch studio musicians, and probably the closest to anybody that was a big name would be Earl Slick, who he knew from Bowie's band. He always went for people he knew rather than random strangers. It was a little bit different on Double Fantasy because they went out and hired session musicians that he didn't necessarily know, and that's where Tony Levin comes in. But he got to know them pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. I think that what he was not interested in was hooking up with celebrity musicians, you know, getting together with Clapton or any number of people. I don't think he was interested in that. I mean, the whole point about 1980 was that he said he didn't want to go around with the old crowd again. What is the old crowd to him? In particular, the one he mentioned was Klaus and Alan White. That whole group, Jesse Ed Davis. And Basically, the whole group that went around and got high <laughs> after the sessions were done. <laughs> right. John right. wanted Double Fantasy to be a relatively clean sessions. Then the discussion of Neil Young, do you believe it's better to burn out than to fade away. That has always been a, a really interesting bit of John talking. Because he doesn't believe that burning out is the best way. He had witnessed a lot of that. I'm not sure I would have left in the end of that quotation where he's talking about John Wayne. It gives the actor a little bit of room to play, but as it has to do with talking about rock and roll and rock and rollers, maybe not so much. That is then followed by an almost completely different bit, which is tied only by the fact that they're talking about rock and roll, that rock and roll was the poor people's thing, that it was only when, quote, the honkies got it, the white people got it, that it turned into this big social phenomenon. Did you feel like it was social phenomenon or just the commercial success of it? When did we know it was something strong and powerful and beautiful? I'm not sure what John is saying there. I would guess it's probably 
both. I mean, he's almost saying that, that I liked it before it became this other thing. The next section, I had a group, Beetle Talk. George's relationship with me was one of young follower, an older guy. He's three or four years younger than me. George is ten years younger than me, so I'll just smack that. He's talking about how the band kind of got together, but he talks about George having to play raunchy, and he says, or, or whatever the old story was. And it's funny, he re- refers to it as being something other than whatever that old story is. I don't really remember it. Maybe he played raunchy. Who knows? Despite the anger on the Rolling Stones side, the, the juxtaposition of the different interview clips uh, more or less falls in line, although he's certainly less separatist from the other three in the 1980s side. Right. In 1970, it's like, yeah, these guys are still here. We're still friends, but we're not a band anymore, and I don't really want anything to do with them as musicians. Whereas in 1980, it's like, oh, yeah, well, all right, yeah, we're still friends, and you know, maybe George is mad at me, or I'm mad at George right now, but I won't feel that way tomorrow, and yeah, sure, we could get together if if the situation were correct. It's telling, in a way, that in the, in the 1970 interview, he kind of goes into some amount of detail about the hero worship that George bestowed upon him in the early days. Yeah, he actually calls George a disciple of mine, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Right. Although, you know, it may not be inaccurate. George had no problem calling Ravi his guru, and John certainly kind of filled that role in the early days. Well, it it wasn't that that that, uh, caught my uh, interest. It was the fact that he, he goes into this detail in the 1970 interview and then you jump to the 1980 interview and he still has a problem with George. (laughs) (laughs) There's not enough time to go into what was actually going on. The the whole business about John was hurt by, I mean, mine, you know, (laughs) right. He mentioned every two bit session player, but he only mentioned me like four times in the whole book. And knowing that he felt like George was a disciple of his and, you know, uh, that a hero worshipped John, to only get mentioned four times in his book might have been really hurtful to John. Well, it clearly was. <laughs> For the next section, the whole game, clips of their arrival in the U.S. and Sullivan introducing them. Right. So he's talked about the Beatles, and now it is the Beatles in quotes almost. It's, here's what I actually think about Beatlemania. And he's pretty dismissive of it, really, on both sides of this thing. We'd already done half the world, England and Europe. And by the time we got to America, it, it didn't have the guts, you know. Hmm. And we were already out of creative performing by then. Only the excitement of the American kids, the American scene, made it come alive. And somewhere in the middle there, the, they get some quotes about how the live show had died by the end of the theater tour and that everything was... Certainly by the time they got to America, it was all just pure craftsmanship. You remember the the early pressings of the Hamburg show, George Harrison talks about the very same thing, that they basically, you know, once they left Hamburg, they kind of, <laughs> it was kind of all over. But they just weren't existing as the musicians anymore. They were just kind of, you know, they, they played a Titan show, same show over and over. 
if you did two houses, you did the same show. When we arrived here, we knew how to handle press. The British press are the toughest in the world. We could handle anything, you know. I think earlier, he says, you and your ilk, the Beatle Watchers. In the Playboy interview from 65, he constantly refers to Beatle Peatles. He views the fans as being this thing, probably a screaming, undulating mass. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we were talking about Australia a couple of weeks right. back. That was very clearly very much in John's head during the Rolling Stone interview. Yeah. It was definitely a game. The section on the whole game, John talks about it, that they were writing and putting things in as an intellectual exercise. That they were moving forward, not just to move forward, but because they were actually thinking about it and wanting to move this art forward very early. I don't know whether it was that thought out. And he kind of says the same thing because that leads into the two sides of the discussion about William Mann and the Aeolian cadences. It's telling that on the 1970 side, he calls William Mann a bullshitter. (laughs) There's a guy in England called William Mann who writes in the Times and wrote the first intellectual review of the Beatles, which got people talking about us in that intellectual way. As musicians? Yeah, and he wrote about Aeolian cadences and all sort of musical terms. And he is a bullshitter, you know. Did you put Aeolian cadences in It Won't Be Long? To this day, I don't have any idea what they are. They sound like exotic birds. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you know how Lennon was about that sort of intellectual musician? Because there's not much difference between William Mann and pointing out Aeolian cadences and Bob Dylan, who said the Beatles' chords were just insane. It's just a slightly more musician-y way of describing it rather than a writer talking about it. And to a certain extent, it's back to the old writing about music is dancing about architecture. Exactly. Then that leads into the the famous uh, quote from 1980 that, oh, I still don't know what they are. They sound like exotic birds to me. Right. For a film that is ostensibly not about the Beatles, they're spending a lot of time pulling the Beatle clips from these two interviews. Hey, you want them to watch the damn show. (laughs) (laughs) You got to put in those Beatle clips. (laughs) We now move on to yet another section on the Beatles. (laughs) Beatle music. And here they have lots and lots of clips you got george martin you've got the music of lennon mccarty you got the hello goodbye waving you got the yellow submarine waving and then the yellow submarine live action and hey bulldog from the end granted it is 30 seconds that they put all of this in but it's like okay yeah he's already talked about what the beatles meant to him and he's already talked about the guys but now it's more specifically about the songwriting and here it is specifically to show that he was very definitely of two minds in 1970 and 1980. In the Rolling Stone clips, he's there talking about, oh, well, you know, Paul and I almost never wrote together. Yeah. <laughs> Not even sure how to address that. We have many times. We always wrote separately, but we wrote together because because we enjoyed it a lot sometimes, and also because they'd say, well, you're going to make an album. So we'd get together and knock off a few songs. You know, just like a a job. You didn't compose most of your stuff separately, as other counts have said? No, no, no. 
I said that, but I was lying. <laughs> By the time I said that, we were so sick of this idea of writing and singing together, especially me, that I started this thing about you know, we never wrote together, we were never in the same room, which wasn't true, you know. We wrote a lot of stuff together, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, eyeball to eyeball. We didn't write much, we wrote everything. I think he explains it very well at one point, you know, when they were on tour, you're going from place to place, you're on the bus, you're right. There's not much more you can do. You can read magazines, but they were supposed to write things, so they wrote. And they knew they had to be in the studio next week. Right. And as long as they toured, it was easy. It was part of the way. But, you know, once they stopped touring so much and they all bought homes and lived in different areas, then you actually had to get in your car drive over to where you, whoever's house it was you were going to do it and it just becomes a different thing as we've discussed and you know particularly we think about get back paul knew what john was writing so there had to have been at least some songwriting sessions in there they kind of went through what each other was working on that's different it's not nose to nose but they were still collaborating as songwriters yes Pretty much all the way up to certainly 69. I do like the cross cut. <laughs> I said that, but I was lying. <laughs> and that's very John Lennon. Right. The upshot of this is that there wasn't resentment, resentment between John and Paul, but that they had a very competitive relationship. And that is actually a really good summation of what it was like to Lennon, at least, to be working with Paul. Was there resentment from Paul at first? No, it wasn't resentment, but it was competitive. When you see that quote, also keep in mind of, of John's quote where it'd be like, well, Paul would write his 20 songs and come back and go, well, we're going to go into the recording studio. And suddenly I had to slam together my songs. And so they didn't write the same way. Some of that competition was just, I've got a bunch of songs. You have what, two? <laughs> Well, again, it's the kind of thing you can see and get back. Not only did Paul have songs, Paul was coming up with songs every night. Oh, yeah, here, here. I wrote this last night. Right. And while it may not have been quite so prolific through 66, 67, and 68, we know it was still happening in a very similar way. Yeah. Okay, the next section, it's got some of the help footage, although it leads from the help footage to some of the behind-the-scenes help footage, which is also kind of interesting to me clips of john being dismissive of beatlemania how in order to be what the beatles were as he says in 1970 one has to completely humiliate oneself and he's much more mellow about it on the 1980 side <laughs> it gets easier to deal with as i get older i don't know whether you learn control or when you grow up you Calm down a little. I think he's probably still a little bit angry about it, even in 1980. In 1970, he's not only is he mad at everybody, you got Klein whispering into his ear, well, look what Brian Epstein made you do. That's not right. Yeah, and yet when Brian died and that interview at the Maharishis, John certainly is in a place where I don't think he was thinking, oh, well, I sure I'm glad that guy who is making me do all this stuff is gone. That is certainly true, yes. The next section, a drug is a drug is a drug. The only way to survive in Hamburg, to play eight hours a night, was to take pills. 
like the waitress gave you the pills and drink. That would have been the first time that we really absolutely heard the prelude in the story. Some of that might have been in Love Me Do, although I think it was even washed down a little bit there. Oh, yeah. It was generalized. You know, it's, it's kind of like saying, well, there were wild times in Hamburg. <laughs> And without going into any great detail. Well, he doesn't say Benzedrine. He does specifically say uppers. And, you know, now that we've seen the photographs, yep, Preludin was there. And John kind of says that it was pot which got him off the pep pills. So Good for pot. <laughs> well, <laughs> You're not going to argue for Preludin, are you? Well, that, what I will say is that the amphetamines are certainly used to treat some of the mental disorders that John might have had. I mean, he, he we also got some clips in here where he talks about the depression that he suffered. You know, amphetamines are one way that they do treat depression. Now, you don't gobble them like candy, but under a controlled regimen, that is one way that they treat depression. Right. Next, the biggest bastards on earth. We get the... Uh, interview footage from the 1966 Shea Stadium with the young girl who may or may not be a young Meryl Streep. She has been identified as Meryl Streep and she has not been identified as Meryl Streep. So So there's a matter-antimatter thing going on here. Meryl Streep says that she was at the show, but it hasn't clearly been said, yes, that's her, no, that's not her. It does look a lot like her. (laughs) We get a little talk of of Derek and Neil, and this is where we got the whore discussion and the Satyricon on tour discussion, which we mentioned from Australia. I like the quote. Who would arrange for all that stuff? Derek and Neil, that was their job. And Mal, but... (laughs) I'm not going into all that. Like businessmen on a convention. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if John was protecting Mal or, or what the deal was. I mean, of course, Mal was always their buddy. Yeah. The, the way the quote read was, you know, it's Derek and Neil. That was their job. And Mal, but I'm not going into that. You know, Mal was married. And, and so, you know. And they really didn't have that much to cut to from 1980. I mean, John was kind of over it by time of the Playboy interview. Right. He couldn't talk about all the girls. He could only talk about May Pang. Which, he, which they have nothing or almost nothing from. Right. Then there's a bit where John claims that in 1970, John claims that he doesn't remember the order of rubber, solar, revolver, which is an interesting not juxtaposed to anything in this film, but juxtaposed to George Harrison in Anthology, where he also claims that he has no idea which came first and and that he thought those two records were like part one and part two. Particularly given the way we kind of think of those two records. Right. Yeah. The experimentation, what they were writing about, it really changed on those records. And so you can almost see, particularly since the last sessions for Rubber Soul were in late October, early November of 65. They began recording Revolver in April of 66. So there wasn't a long break between the sessions, and there was no tour in early 66. So the two records seemed, I think they they were connected. That is what they kind of thought of it as, is that for them, oh yeah, they're just part of the same thing. That is followed by, she was red hot, intercutting, two tellings of how John met Yoko and here is almost word for word between the two versions. And John always told this story in exactly the same way. 
you can almost take a word from any given interview where he's telling this story and match it up with another one. <laughs> Probably one of those stories he's had to tell over and over and over. How did you meet Yoko? A ladder, which led to a painting which was hung on the ceiling. And it looked like a, a, a blank canvas with a chain with a spyglass hanging on the end of it. So I climbed the ladder and, and, you, and you know, I looked through the spyglass and there's tiny little writing there. And no, so you really have to stand on the top of the ladder like this, you know. And, you know, so you're, you're on this ladder and you, you feel like a fool. You could fall at any minute and, and, you know, and you look through and it just says yes. So it was positive. I felt relieved. They actually have the actor climbing on the chair to talk about climbing up the ladder and looking through the spyglass. The next section, the nitty gritty, there's nothing mystical about it from George Harrison talking about Maharishi. Right. And here is probably the most significantly lengthy bit from Yoko we get in, in either set of interviews that Lefkowitz chose to include in here. Because, you know, she talks a little bit about Maharishi before John goes into it. Now it can be told, fab listeners. You know, it seems my partings are always not as nice as I'd like them to be. There was a big hullabaloo about him raping me a pharaoh and trying to get off with me a pharaoh and a few other women and things like that. <laughs> and we, we went down to him and we'd stayed up all night discussing was it true or not true, you know. And when George started thinking it might be true, I thought, well, it must be true because if George is doubting it, there must be something in it. While more mellow about Maharishi in 1980, he was still kind of resentful of what it meant to go to Rishikesh and be sitting around eating lousy vegetarian food. <laughs> and yet, you know, the things he ate later on, I mean, he, he was always messing with his diet. The macrobiotic thing that he ended up on was really an aspect that he was driving toward his whole life almost. Once he kind of got past acid, right? fish and brown rice was always in his head for some reason. It kind of reminds me of, of Steve Jobs and his weird diet, but that's a whole different story. It's kind of odd because, you know, both George and Paul have remained pretty supportive of TM. Maharishi, yeah. Well, and, Ringo too, really. Right. And so why John would be still acrimonious over something that I think by that time everybody thought was kind of a bullshit thing. As far as reality... I don't know what John thought of Maharishi by 1980. I mean, in 1970, it was certainly something that he was angry about. One of many things that he was angry about. He had stacked up a series of gurus, and Maharishi was just another one that had disappointed him. So he just remained mad at him, I guess. Janov would join that list. <laughs> For sure. The next section is real money where you get John sort of talking on either side about how much money do you actually have? The 1980 side dominates because John goes into a mini rant about what money actually means to him and how he kind of actually needs money to do what he wants to do. Right. Which is kind of refreshing. As opposed to the Rolling Stone side, the 1970 side where he's, I want to be rich. Uh, you know, that's why I got into this thing, but... He's not so much on the bandwagon of, oh, you know, I'm doing this. It's part of the industry, and I'm doing it because, well, I want money. Right. The very reason why Alan Klein is there, he wants money. Spinal tap, give me some money. <laughs> Do I have to come right out? 
tell you everything. The next section, John is the revolutionary. The, they call it a revolution, more Beatles stuff. You know, John talks about the three versions of revolution. The politics he's talking about is as much Beatle politics as it is global politics. <laughs> it's true. You know, the, the fact that he wanted Revolution 1 as a single, do you think that would have had any chance at all? What would have been on the B side and would it have ended up being a double A side? You know, as a wide album single, they probably would have thrown Birthday on the B side and and then they would end up calling it a double A side. And then everybody would play Birthday and then John would be mad about that. <laughs> Even when he talks about it, it says, oh, what bullshit thing? It was Hello Goodbye or something. It's like, oh, no, no, it was Hey Jude. And, well, that's OK. Which was worth it is John's words. <laughs> right. By implication, it's like, and that hello, goodbye show is not worth it. You don't completely disagree with that? Not at all. Particularly when you think the flip side was, I am the walrus. Oh, my God. I would have played that. (laughs) (laughs) John makes the claim, again, this is the claim from 1970, that revolution was him being awake again, and they, they meaning the other Beatles, weren't used to it. I would disagree with that, and they don't have anything to play off of that in 1980. I mean, he was falling deeper into that pit through that whole period, leaving Cynthia and the drugs during Get Back, and then, you know, everything. He didn't really come out of it until Cold Turkey. I think that Revolution, for him, was reclaiming the singles status and... The fact that it didn't fly was hurtful to him. I don't think that he was necessarily right. And if that were the case, there were certainly quotes about that in the Playboy interview, which, well, they didn't include here, but oh well. Right. You know, you talked about a double A side. Well, in my head, Hey Jude and and Revolution are a double A side. But the truth is, Hey Jude was one of those rare phenomenon songs and it just completely eclipsed revolution. The fact that Hey Jude became the Beatles' anthem in a way, almost more an anthem than All You Need Is Love was. Right. We've talked about my feelings about Hey Jude at the towards the end of 68. It was just like a saving grace after a really lousy year. That along with the good earth going around the moon. I mean, you know, right. those two things kind of... Made humanity sit up and look right. for a minute. So the, the end of this section kind of centers on the Playboy side of things. John saying that when he dabbled in politics, it was more out of guilt than anything else. It's, it's kind of the am I capitalist or am I not end of things. Right. He mentions Gore Vidal, which is kind of amusing because, well, we spent a little bit of time talking about Gore Vidal last week when we talked about Playboy. <laughs> Right. Then the clip, which we always get, which he also repeated in the RKO interview, you know, what does it mean that you're such a pacifist that you get shot? Between Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. John was entitled. He certainly, to some extent, uh, is in that pantheon. Yeah, it's because that's what's associated with him, regardless of all the minutiae that may cloud it all up. I mean, he was a man who is known for promoting peace and considered a a pacifist. And so 
Martin Luther King was known for promoting peace. The same with Gandhi. You may not feel that John Lennon was a pure pacifist, but he was known for promoting peace, and then he ends up getting shot. They kind of counter that with a bit from the Rolling Stone interview where John says that a violent revolution is almost inevitable. You don't really believe that we're headed for a violent revolution. Well, I don't know. I've got, I mean, I've got no more conception than you. I can't see. Eventually, it'll happen. Like, it will happen. It has to happen. What else can happen? The next section, Bad Vibes, which is covered by clips of the John Yoko arrest. uh, And then in the middle, they put John and Yoko in the airport, and Paul is dancing. It's like, what is that? (laughs) And then they end it with Al Cap. It's... uh, a lot of talk from both interviews about people not getting or understanding Yoko. This is the other section where we get a fairly lengthy bit of dialogue from Yoko. When John was a Beatle, we stayed in a room, and John and I were in bed, and the door was closed and all that, but not locked. And one of the Beatle assistants just walked in and talked to him as if I weren't there. He, he, was, he was used to people being in bed with me, you know, so any female was just sort of normal. It was mind-blowing, you know. I was invisible. Lengthy being relative term, because it wasn't that long, but yeah. It was maybe a minute. Right. That we kind of know. We know that John, and actually probably to a lesser extent Yoko, were resentful of the way that Yoko was received. And, and you know, this is the usual sorts of bits about if you think I'm being led around by, like a dog on a leash, not really the most uh, revelatory bits from the interviews, but okay, you know, I get why they chose to include them in this film. Yeah, because those were the important points that he was making. They, they don't reveal anything new is <laughs> because they are important and they've been played a lot over the years by those people who still think that Yoko broke up the Beatles. We move on to get back. What he says is that the film was set up by Paul for Paul. I don't know if I necessarily will accept that. Even in 1970, I don't know if I will necessarily will accept that. Politically speaking, Paul had more contact, influence, whatever, over Michael Lindsay Hogg than John did. And, you know, get back originally was a long film over three hours and it got really chopped up in order to fit the business model michael lindsey hogg has told us on any number of occasions that they had the screening on the night of the moon landing he got back three sets of notes which were all essentially gee there's too much john in this <laughs> i was yeah. gonna say he was the bad boy you know he, he didn't have good press this is then followed by uh a bit of discussion about Phil Spector. Phil Spector was brought in to produce Let It Be. When Spector came round, we was like, well, all right, if you want to work with, with us, go and do your audition, man. You know, do, do. And he worked like a pig on it, you know? Hmm. Phil Spector, I, I don't think Phil Spector really actually worked that hard on it. Well, I don't know. He wanted to do the Beatles, and, and I guess he had a vision for what, let it be was going to be but i don't know that he necessarily worked that much harder on it than he worked on any other set of recordings he did i would say he worked much harder on all things must pass yeah that's probable but you know the last thing that lennon had heard was a set of recordings that he didn't really like specter put some strings on and 
some horns and a harp <laughs> and some voices. It's the thing we've been saying all along that none of them had a real solid recollection of what it was actually like to be there. They too had been taken in by what came afterwards, the, all of the Klein business. And well, I mean, you know, back to the badly recorded, it's like, okay, yeah, we're right. going to say that because here's the deal. Then it ends with something that I'm not sure comes from the right place. You got a bit of John talking about how none of the songs had anything to do with each other. I think John's talking about Pepper in that clip. Everybody praises the album so much, but none of the songs had anything to do with each other. You know, no thread at all, only the fact that we stuck them together. So Yeah, I agree. Next section, Under the Spell, Central Park, the Annie Leibovitz session. And here's where he's talking about that he and Yoko have a teacher-pupil relationship. It, interesting when you contrast to what he was saying about George. <laughs> he was George's guru, and now Yoko is his guru. Right. This is dominated by 1980 clips, uh, John going off about... If they can't see why I'm with Yoko, right. and if they can't see that, then they don't see anything. You know, they're just jacking off to, could be any, Mick Jagger, uh, or somebody else. You know, let them go and jack off to Mick Jagger, okay? Yeah, appreciate I that. don't need it. I absolutely don't need it, you know? Let them chase wings, you know? <laughs> just forget about me. If that's what you want, go after Paul or Mick. I ain't here for that. Go play with the rolling wings. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the, his relationship with Yoko is always such where I think the thing that he really felt grateful for in his life was, I think he said at one point that she showed him what it was to be Elvis Beetle and that there was this whole company or system set up to keep him right there in that you know everybody was working for the beatles not for john necessarily well that was good for him but the beatles and she showed him something different which he was very grateful for pissed off a lot of beetle fans <laughs> <laughs> we get a couple of clips from the 1970 interview a, a really nice bit which i think was probably an actor's choice where john and yoko start holding hands right <laughs> the whole film may be worth it just for that bit i mean yeah it's great to hear recreations of these and have you know some visuals to a company and the juxtaposition but that was the moment in this film that oh yeah that's really kind of cool. <laughs> There's one point where they're talking about the way people treated Yoko, I think. And, and she says, well, I was insulted by da-da-da. And John goes, you're always insulted, my dear. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> One of the bits that I really like from the Playboy interview is where Yoko briefly forgets John. And it's like, it's John. J-O-H-N. <laughs> right. It comes from Johan, actually. <laughs> That's in here. And, and they did a good job reproducing that. Yeah. The end is a little bit weak where John not only talks about loving her, but the, the kind of the sexual side of things. And it's like, uh, well... Uh, I don't want to go off and be a swinger. He's whining about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Here's where we got the brief May Pang mention. Now, 
Yoko says that she sent John and May Pang off to LA, and May Pang says that that was their decision. You know, okay, all right. Something else for May Pang to complain about, I suppose. Kind of the heart of it is that John kept saying that he wanted to come home, and I mean, we, we've talked about that before. That really probably was the center of what was going on uh, in this disagreement, and there was probably a real chance that. John would never be allowed back in. Yeah. But as I say, the ending is a little bit weak. It's like, I want to be, I I don't want to be a swinger. (laughs) Oh, I guess it's all right. (laughs) Those guys that are just coming up in the business. All right. uh, So after a long section about John Yoko, we have to go back to Beatles chat. I still love these guys. Footage of Paul and George signing the dissolution papers. The Beatles are breaking up. (laughs) Yeah, uh, John's quote about this, uh, I knew this before I went to Toronto. Six months later, he comes out with whatever, referring to Paul. Before he went to Toronto, conventional wisdom is Toronto was the turning point where John actually really and truly decided that this was it. Just before Toronto, they had the meeting where it's like, okay, we'll do four for me, four for Paul, four for George, and one or two for Ringo if he wants them. Okay, so we're talking a matter of days? Well, we're talking about Toronto. Well, I know, but he could have decided in England. What changed was the trip to Toronto. But he already talked to everybody there about being in a band. Was it the end of the Beatles, or was it in addition to the Beatles? Or Granted, he was recording solo stuff, and he was recording rock solo stuff. So, well, what does that mean? Right. Then that leads into John from 1980 talking about being a house husband. You know, what what did it mean to him? Those two bits don't really go together all that well. Next steps, yeah. Here's a clip from here and here's a clip from there. We can kind of shove them together and I guess it kind of makes sense together. Okay. Next section, uh, crazy and genius, a bit from the Imagine film where John is crying slash yelling at Phil Spector. (laughs) They use this to illustrate the question that John addressed in both sets of interviews about whether he actually is a genius and and what does it mean to be a genius. In 1970, John was pretty definitively, I'm a genius and I've always been one. In 1980, he's not so sure. Well, then he's growing up. (laughs) (laughs) I like the quote there from the Playboy interview where he's saying that he just sees and hears things differently from other people. That is the game. That is the truth, I would say. We had fun in the 60s, they said, but the others took it away from us and spoiled it all for us. And I I, I was trying to say, no, just keep doing it. Nothing happened except we grew up. We we did our thing just like they were telling us while while you kids, you know, it's exactly the same. Most of the so-called now generation are getting in, in a job and all that. Nothing changed. The dream is over. John talks about where he thinks things may be going. In 1970. We get a little bit of the the war is over billboard. In 1970, it's like, well, we just got to keep doing it. Whatever it is that will make the world better, I think that's what John is trying to say. The struggle. (laughs) With the counterpoint being from 1980. I'm still all about that, but we just grew up. Nothing has really changed. This is a clip that you had mentioned last week as one of your favorites about, you know, uh, we didn't get everything we cried for. Weren't the 70s a drag? 
Yeah, I think that's an important thing. Because I think as you get older, there are things about the world that just don't change, regardless of what you want or what each succeeding generation wants. Some aspects of the world that just don't change. How did we move from hippies to yuppies? As the yuppies get older, some of those same people are the folks that are well watching Fox News. Has anything changed? Yes, no, maybe so. <laughs> In the last section here, the unknown clips of the Instant Karma promo film, uh, what I refer to as the Fred Seaman tapes, the stuff from the private videos of John Yoko and Sean that were stolen and have been on the bootleg market for years now. The John and Sean birthday party at Tavern on the Green and more of the Central Park clips. And the camera goes in close on John where he's talking about the dream really the point of all of it including the beatles was to make your own dream right and i mean that kind of goes along with what you were just saying yeah there's a quote i think out of the hunter davies biography that just talks about they don't really understand why everybody can't do what they do that anybody could be a musician you do it make your dream we did. Which goes along with what John was saying about politics and, you know, don't put it on Carter or Reagan or Obama to bring it up to the present day or Biden. It, you got to go do it yourself. Figure out what you want to do and do it. The juxtaposition there, the counterpoint there is John just saying, I'm a guy. I'm just a guy. See, everybody takes you up on the words you said, naughty fawn. I'm just a, a guy who people ask, what, what about things? And I blab off. And some of it makes sense, and some of it's bullshit, and some of it's lies, and some of it's God knows what, I'm saying, you know? What is the 80s dream to you, John? Well, make your own dream. Right. That's the Beatles story, isn't it? Right. That's Yoko's story, that's right. what I'm saying now. Right, yeah. Produce your own dream. If you want to save Peru, go and save Peru. It's quite possible to do anything, mm -hmm. but not to put it on leaders and parking meters. I'm not a, a guru. I'm not an idol. I'm just a guy. And while it is saying kind of the same thing, it's saying it in a very much more rough-hewn way. During this final bit, we get the one camera move. It zooms in on a close-up of... 1980 Lennon with the glasses and his hair is now over his face as he's going back and revealing this wisdom to us. And the 1970 clip and the 1980 clip both start with cigarettes lighting. <laughs> right. And then that takes us to the surprise ending. If you haven't seen the film, well, stop here and go finish watching the film for goodness sake, because this could be considered probably the only real spoiler in the movie because, well, you read the Rolling Stone interview. You read the Playboy interview. You know, to a greater or lesser extent, everything that came into these clips in the film. The only real surprise is how they chose <laughs> to put the two pieces together. Yes. Again, I'll, I'll reiterate that it was very clever and uh, highly entertaining. I think it's a good film. I think it's a, a really different from any of these other Beatle films, for sure. Yes. My complaint about it being a little actorly, okay, I'll, I can accept that, but that does not hurt the film. It's a really 
good use of $5,000. And it does kind of tell you a little bit about the differences between John over those two eras. Yeah. Okay. So hopefully you have finished watching the film. The last cut, we see a cigarette lighting and Bearer is now in a beetle cut with the Buddy Holly glasses. (laughs) 1963 era. Once again, it starts with a cigarette lighting. So what, what do you eventually want to do, John? Do you want to continue in show business? Well, first of all, we're not going to fizzle out in half a day. But afterwards, I'm not going to change into some tap dancing musical. I'll just develop what I'm doing at the moment. Although whatever I say now, I'll change my mind next week. I mean, we all know that bit about it won't be the same when you're 25. I couldn't care less, you know? <laughs> That's a really nice way to end this movie, I think. <laughs> right. Then it fades out. You get closing credits. A fake version of the God demo. I think we'd had the God demo on the Lennon box set. I mean, that was before the Plastic on a Band box, obviously. But we get the closing credits, and and this demo we learned is by Bearer and Lefkowitz. So they actually did record something. So the actor can sing a little bit as well and sing a little (laughs) bit like John as well. Right. They'll use copyrighted clips, but they'll do a... They'll do their own version of not even of something which was officially released, which was a demo, although, like I say, it may have been in the linen box. It's, well, John, if you hear the show and decide you want to talk to us, we'd be happy to talk to you. <laughs> yes. You are obviously a Beatle fan as well, and it might be nice for you to talk to people who know these interviews as well, if not better than you do. <laughs> a really good piece of work, I think. I can see why it did as well as it did in film festivals. Right. It wouldn't have been a commercial film. No. <laughs> it would have played in indie houses and it would have probably gotten some positive reviews from the critics, but people wouldn't have really gone to see this. It, it wouldn't have done any better than the May Pang movie did. So, Yeah, then you get into the whole thing of why people do things. I mean, this to me was... Uh an act of love in a way it was, it was fandom but it's also someone trying to make a name for themselves a little bit i mean i want to make real movies and and this will act as my real i think the one who comes off best is bear he did so much work in getting it right the phrasing goes off a little bit but the words are all there and it is more or less in the way John actually said them. Yeah. That film is now available on YouTube, and there are a couple of clips, including about a two-minute clip where he puts together some of the actual John Lennon stuff from mostly he says that he used the heart play for the 1980 stuff. Oh, and, and one other nice little bit of set design. Yeah, in 1980, John did the interviews all over the place, and they're stuck to the one set in the kitchen. But you do see the number of tapes gradually increase. <laughs> right. To, to kind of show the passing of time. Oh, here's one tape, here's two. And then, you know, towards the end, you got a dozen tapes stacked up next to the recorder. <laughs> I thought that was a little bit clever. <laughs> 
but continuity (laughs) (laughs) exactly all right very good i mean you know for for no money it's done very well very well so very well all right very good so john and i will be back next week with a new show although we will pre-announce that there will be some changes coming in the not too distant future john will still be with us but we're going to uh, change things up a little bit put me out to pasture No, no, no. You're you're still No, not at all. We're still gonna have you, just probably not every week. Right. Right. All right. Talk to y'all soon. See you next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group and we could be reached at When They Was Fab, and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. mysterious meanings behind all of this it, it just was just four boys, boys you know working out working what out. to call a new album what to call a new album if george if is george doubting, is doubting it, it there must be something in it so, so we went to see my house the whole gang up the next day, day charged down, down to his hut you know, you know his bungalow is very, very rich looking bungalow in the, in the mountains but she's a woman and she's japanese there's, there's racial prejudice against her, and, and there's female, female prejudice against her. It's, it's as simple, simple as that. I just I snap my fingers, fingers and teeny bottles come crawling in my bed. And that's the way, and life, the way life is, because it ain't like that. Like that. And, uh, and I don't want, want it to be like that. That's for, maybe, maybe for, for younger, younger guys who just start the business thing. good golden groupies, you know, that's how it is. We sat in the mountains eating lousy vegetarian food and writing all songs. You know, there are tons of songs in India. And that's what people don't understand. She's the teacher and I'm the pupil. I'm the famous one. I'm the one that's supposed to know everything, but she's my teacher. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going turned up nice again